Hi and welcome to this episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode I'm going to look at another couple of uh, anniversaries from over the last month. If you enjoy this, I'm asking you to just take one simple step and share the uh, podcast with someone. There's buttons all over the tools you're using and there's the opportunity to leave a review if you can't find anyone to share it with. Uh, it would be really appreciated and a small repayment for the effort that goes into making these things. So thank you in advance for that and uh, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a file is at the first anniversary I'm going to look at this week is uh, 1st of March 1915. On this day, uh, Britain and France announced a formal naval blockade of Germany. Standing in Parliament, Britain's Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, made a statement announcing a formal naval blockade against Germany's trade with the rest of the world, placing the blame for the measures he was taking on Germany. Well, he would do that, wouldn't he? He said, Germany has declared that the English Channel, the north and west coasts of France, and the waters around the British Isles are a war area, and has officially notified that all enemy ships found in that area will be destroyed and that neutral vessels may be exposed to danger. This is, in effect, a claim to torpedo at sight. Without regard to the safety of the crew or passengers, any merchant vessel under any flag. As it is not in the power of the German Admiralty to maintain any surface craft in these waters, this attack can only be delivered by submarine agency. He then explained how submarine warfare violated the norms for blockade warfare. Instead of stopping and inspecting the cargo of merchant vessels to determine if they were carrying contraband goods, the submarines, being vulnerable when on the surface, were designed to sink shipping indiscriminately. He went on, Her opponents, that's Britain and France, are therefore driven to frame retaliatory measures in order, in their turn, to prevent commodities of any kind from reaching or leaving Germany. These measures will, however, be enforced by the British and French governments without risk to neutral ships, or to neutral or non-combatant life, and in strict observance with the dictates of humanity. This began the total blockade of Germany, enforced by patrolling the English Channel and the route to the north of Scotland with uh, British ships stopping neutral vessels and determining if goods carried were heading to the Central Powers. The effects of the blockade were mixed and confused by other factors. In 1915, German imports had dropped by 55%, with particular problems experienced in raw materials such as coal, metals and fertilisers. But not all of this was caused by the blockade. The primacy of the war effort robbed from civilian production, and distortions in the markets caused many shortages. Foodstuffs were adequate and were buttressed by neutral countries, such as the Netherlands, but the balance of payments difficulties uh, experienced by Germany limited the purchases that could be made. Internally, uh, the law of unintended consequences kicked in. As Germany took control of the grain market, it distorted the meat market. As German farmers 
chose to feed the price-controlled grain to their pigs, which became more profitable. By the end of 1916, various foodstuffs were seriously affected and substitute or ersatz goods began to appear to replace missing staples. Whilst it seems that starvation was not an issue experienced as a direct result of the blockade, malnutrition was a problem and probably contributed to increased levels of sickness and deaths within the German population later on in the war. The hope that the blockade would bring the German military to its knees never materialised, but the friction and shortages inflicted on the German home front and the economy certainly contributed to the eventual collapse of the war effort in 1918. The next anniversary I'm going to dip into uh, in this uh, quickfire, uh, quickfire episode is uh, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle on the 10th of March 1915. We are embarking on a serious offensive with the object of breaking the German line. There is no idea of merely taking a trench here or a trench there. My objective is to surprise the Germans and push forward to the Aubert Ridge with as little delay as possible and exploit the success thus gained by pushing forward mounted troops as quickly as possible. This summary of the plan for the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle was written by General Douglas Haig, commanding the British First Army, five days before the battle. The offensive was prompted by the French as a part of their strategy to push the Germans back from the huge salient that they had occupied, but was to be a wholly British operation. The attack was to be Britain's first large-scale offensive and was spearheaded by Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson's 4th Corps, comprising the 7th and 8th Divisions, and General Sir James Wilcox's Indian Corps, made from the 3rd Lahore and the 7th Meerut Divisions. The village of Neuve-Chapelle was relatively lightly defended, and once taken, it was just a short mile to the Aubers Ridge, which, although marginally only marginally higher than the surrounding countryside, would allow the Allies to overlook the whole area, which was quite a prize on the Western Front. The British artillery barrage opened fire at 7.30 in the morning and over the next 35 minutes rained intense shellfire down onto the German front line before switching to bombard the village behind. When the initial barrage lifted, the British advanced and found that the German front line had been largely destroyed and made good progress in the centre, taking the village during the morning. However, the left and right flanks at Moated Grange and Port Arthur failed to take the first line of trenches and the centre was ordered to dig in while these extremities were made safe. Moated Grange was taken later in the afternoon but problems remained on the right. Overnight the Germans hastily strengthened their weak second line frantically uh, extending a trench between three redoubts in reinforced ruined buildings. By nightfall the village of Neuve-Chapelle was in British hands and the next day a German counter-attack was repulsed. But over the next few days, British attempts to break through the second line and exploit their initial success failed. The battle showed that trench defences could be overcome, but also how hard it was to bring reserves forward over broken ground, and how hard it was for the commanders to control an evolving situation when relying largely on runners to relay reports and orders over poor terrain. Poor communications in the days before portable radio meant that artillery and reserves couldn't be used to dynamically support the troops when they met resistance, 
and while waiting for further orders, the troops had to wait in position. Perhaps the most telling lesson was on the German side, where their rapid reinforcement successfully contained the offensive before the situation got out of hand. This was a pattern that would be repeated over and over throughout the war. Even so, the initial phase was a stunning success, despite the loss of 11 to 12,000 men killed, wounded or missing on each side. And this success encouraged Haig to think that a breakthrough could be possible in the future. That brings us to the end of the couple of anniversaries I wanted to look at uh, in these, this episode. All things being well, I think the next episode might be something to do with the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, who uh, did uh, good service uh, during the latter part of the war. Uh, but uh, I've got to write it first. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share them and leave a good review, and uh, I thank you for that. And I look forward to you joining us on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye.